We look at the Bible together and we've been in the book of Daniel over the summer and we're going to be continuing our series in Daniel this morning. I wonder, um, have you ever found yourself so attached to others that somehow it feels like your fate and your story is joined to them? I had an experience like that just a couple of months ago. Um, It happened during the World Cup. And... um, At the beginning of the World Cup, I, like many England fans, had very low expectations, not really expecting anything particularly fantastic to happen. And then we beat Panama. And having slain that giant in the footballing world, I, like many others, started to believe football was going to be coming home. And um, for the best part of a month, I kind of just absorbed everything, you know, analysis, speculation. I kind of, I knew everything that was going on in the England camp because it felt like I was part of that camp and I was kicking every ball with them and anyone who watched any of those games with me would know I really lived this stuff and so when we scored a goal, it was as if I'd scored a goal and um, when we fouled someone, it was as if I'd fouled someone but it was unfair, I shouldn't have gotten a red card or whatever it was, you know and there was this real sense of my story is their story right now and of course the kind of crestfallen moment when we got knocked out was a familiar feeling, but the pride of having won a penalty shootout and done quite well was amazing. My story felt like it was their story. We've been in the book of Daniel over the summer, and Daniel lived knowing that his fate and his story was intrinsically linked to others. Daniel and his people had been carried away from the safety and comfort of home to Babylon, taken into exile. And we've seen how Daniel learned how to live in Babylon, totally involved in the city, but totally belonging to God. And we've seen that he enjoyed great influence, but also suffered great trials. And also, in that context, received great revelations of God. He kind of had revelations about oppressive kingdoms that were going to come, but that the Son of Man was going to ultimately rule and reign. You can read about that in Daniel 7 and 8. But throughout, Daniel knew himself to be part of a people much bigger than himself, He was part of the people of God. So their story was his story, like my experience a couple of months ago. He also identified to some extent, though, with the people amongst whom he'd been taken into exile, the Babylonians. Because according to Jeremiah 29, part of the reason that God's people were taken there was in order to prosper that city. Because it's always God's design that the people of God will be a blessing to every nation. And so Daniel understood his story to be tightly connected to others. And he, along with the people of Israel, had been placed for purpose in Babylon. And part of that purpose was to pray. We too have been placed for purpose in our current locations where we live. It tells us in Acts 17 that God has determined the times and the places that we should be living in. So that we might seek the Lord and know him. Part of the purpose for us in where we've been placed is to pray. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. We're going to be in Daniel 9. Now, normally we read through the whole passage at the beginning. I'm not going to do that this morning. It's a long passage. I'd really encourage you to read it in your own time. But we're going to be dipping in and out of Daniel 9. So if you've got your Bible, it'd be good to kind of flip it open so you can follow it with me. We're going to be zooming in in certain parts And getting a flavor of this prayer of Daniel and what it looked like for him to be placed for prayer, what it looks like for us to be a people of prayer placed for purpose. So we're going to be looking at four things. Firstly, prayer's birth. 
prayer's pain, prayer's hope, and prayer's discovery. So we're going to start prayer's birth. And in Daniel 9, from verse 2, we meet Daniel in the word of God. It says, Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel is in the word of God, specifically the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Prayer starts with a knowledge of God, and a knowledge of God comes through the word of God. Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith, and faith comes from hearing the word about Christ. That's what it tells us in Romans 10 in verse 17. Faith comes from hearing, not from our doing, but from hearing the word about Christ, the gospel. So it's not something that we drum up. Actually, it's something that's pulled out of us as we hear what God is really like in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't know God by our own efforts or intellect or imagination. Again, John Calvin said that the human mind is like a factory of idols. Now, we imagine what God might be like, and we end up, though, with a God of our imagination. Because you don't know what God is like through your senses or through your intellectual assent or through introspection. He needs to reveal himself, and that's what he's done through his word. It's through the word of God we come to know who he is. And so, apart from primarily knowing him through his word, we won't really know who he is or what he's like. And faith is the chief exercise, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And so we need to know God, that faith might be drawn out of us so that we see him and we trust him and we pray to him. We bring to him our requests. The scriptures are such a gift to us. You know, when you pick up your Bible, and I know some of us have got it on an electric device, but when you pick it up, this is the word of God. This is the living word of God. It's powerful to change everything because it reveals to us who he is and what he's like and it turns us into those who will follow him, believe in him, hearts turned to him. Daniel was a man immersed in the word of God. Here he is in Jeremiah. But it would seem that Daniel had been daily shaped by the scriptures, immersing himself in them, in that he kind of knew them. They were just part of who he was, the way he thought. His mind was shaped by them. In Matthew 4, in verse 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need the word of God. It nourishes us. It sustains us. It gives us life. We need it as much as our bodies need food every day. We need the word of God. Daniel had developed a hunger for God's word. And the commentator Wallace says that Daniel's prayer, which we'll come on to see, is what you would call liturgical. It is made up of a mosaic of phrases taken from all the books that he'd been studying and inevitably memorizing. So what's happened is Daniel has immersed himself in the word of God, thereby come to see who God is, and the word has birthed faith, and that's brought out prayer, which speaks the word of God back to God. So, so prayer is birthed in the word. Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 45, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Daniel's heart was full of God's word, and so it shaped the way that he spoke, the way that he prayed. We need to keep getting the truth into us. 
Do you know, folks, that's why every Sunday we gather to hear the word of God. Because by the time we get past Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we need the word of God again, proclaimed. We need to hear it spoken out and realize Jesus has been offered to us, given to us. And that when we see what God is like in the person of Jesus, we trust him and it sustains us. It's why it's important to build in regular moments to just get the Bible into us, whether hearing it or whether reading it. Devotionals, sometimes hearing truth-filled songs and hymns. On Thursday, when we gather to pray, we'll almost certainly start off by singing truths about God and maybe reading some passages from the Bible because in that way, prayer will be birthed as we come to see again what God is like. So if ever we're going to be a praying people, we must be a people of the word. We're to see God in the scripture and also to see the world around us. Karl Barth was perhaps one of the greatest theologians in the 20th century, and he said a Christian should take your Bible and take your newspaper and read them both, but interpret the newspapers by the Bible. So as we know God in the scriptures, we see the world around us and we come to understand what God's heart is for the world. Birth's prayer. So prayer is birthed in the word of God. What about prayer's pain? Well, as we look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, the whole flow of it is a prayer of confession and repentance. Verse 3, having looked at the word of God, it says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. With fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. The whole of the prayer is marked by confession and repentance because as Daniel has seen more of who God is in his word, he's come to see who the people of God are, the state that they're in. And actually, as we come closer to God, we become more aware of our own sinfulness. In the light of who he is, we realize that we fall very far short. We don't come looking for sinfulness by looking at ourselves and trying to beat ourselves up by how bad we must be. No, that's not the way it comes. Revelation of our condition comes by seeing who he is. It's in his light. Because the Bible says God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. And, and light exposes, doesn't it? Have you ever had an experience that I've had many times when you wake up in the morning and everything's still a bit dark and you're a little bit bleary-eyed and you brush your teeth, you get changed and you go out and perhaps you've got a meeting that morning and it's only in the light of an office when you're in the meeting that you realize you've got massive splodge of toothpaste over your shirt and your socks are odd and your flies are undone and it's all just terrible. It's all awful. But you didn't realize that until you were in the light. And unfortunately, everyone else was in the light as well. When, when we see God more clearly and the light of his holiness, it becomes clear what our condition is. And we see that that's the case throughout the Bible. Many different examples of that. But let me just hone in for a second on Peter in Luke chapter 5. There we join Peter in a boat with Jesus. And Jesus has just been proclaiming the word of God. And then he says to Peter, let down your nets. And Peter's saying, well, actually, we've been doing that all night. But because you say so, because you've given me the word, is what it says in the ESV version, I will do it. 
And so he does, and they end up collecting such a huge catch of fish that the nets start to break, and, and Peter's response is recorded in Luke 5, verse 8. and says that when Peter saw it, the catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In the light of the holiness of who Christ is, Peter came to see who he is. But Fleming Rutledge points this out, that the remarkable thing about Peter's confession is that his words are spoken precisely in the presence of the one who will never depart from him. Peter speaks having already been sought out by the one who is full of grace and truth and will never leave him nor forsake him. So moments of conviction of sin are in fact moments in which we find ourselves already held in the gracious intention of God. And awareness of sin occurs when he, the Holy One, draws near, intending grace towards us. So actually they become a moment of even joy in the pain of conviction of sin, which is why David can pray, um, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation as he confesses his sin and says things like, surely from birth I was sinful. God's presence brings awareness of our sin, but also of his gracious intention. The same is true of Daniel. Though Daniel had been devoted to God throughout his life, this isn't like he was new to God, but here in chapter 9, as he's reading the word, he's confronted with his own sinfulness and that of the people. And yet, as we'll go on to see, God's movement towards him is always loving kindness. But I don't actually want to major on individual sin here. You see, the predominant theme throughout Daniel 9 is his association with the people. It's a corporate prayer. It's about a confession of corporate sin. Daniel is concerned with the state of the people that he belongs to. And he completely owns it as his own. He sees himself implicated within the state of his people. And so he confesses and repents, not just of his own sin, but of that of the people. You see that in verse 20. And so from verses 3 to 8, Daniel's giving voice to the confession. He says things like in, in verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. And again in verse 8, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. Now, we are very individualistic society. We don't tend to think this way. We often think of ourselves as islands with no particular connection to the people around us. Certainly no responsibility for the choices and the actions of those around us. But that's not the biblical way of thinking at all. We are not islands without moral investment in those around us. Rather, we're mysteriously connected to the people that we're part of. So, Certainly that's true of the community of believers at large, the global church. We're connected and so we share in the story of the church at large, but also to the people that we're placed amongst, Birmingham, the UK, the world. Now in Eastern cultures, this is a bit easier to understand. Ravi Zacharias is a Christian speaker who speaks all around the world in different conferences and when he is introduced in an Eastern context, um, 
and he's introduced to the conference, they, they spend a lot of time talking about his family, but not about him. They'll introduce him by the story of his family. Because what's understood is that more important than necessarily what you've done is who you belong to, where, where you've come from. We're not islands. We, as believers, are connected to the church at large. And there are wonderful stories of amazing things happening across the world in different church contexts, amongst the Presbyterians, amongst the Anglicans, amongst the uh, Baptists, amongst the Catholics, amongst people like us in New Frontiers, and Catholics, lots of things. Wonderful things happening. And we also read some terrible things. Over the last few months, there's been a lot of reporting of abuse that's occurred within the church. In the Catholic church and in the Protestant church. I, I watched a um, couple of weeks ago a, li a little documentary they had on the BBC and they were interviewing three grown-up people who in their childhood had been abused by priests. And it had a devastating effect on their life. It completely shaped their life. One woman said that whenever she hears the word God, she sees the hands of her abuser. That is to us, open shame. It's to us, open shame. The world doesn't distinguish between a church here and a church there. The church is heard in that breath as doing those kind of things. To us, open shame. There are different contexts in which a prosperity gospel is preached while there is no care for the poor on their doorstep. That's to us open shame. There are examples of disunity and bickering within the church. It's our problem. I'm delighted to say that within Birmingham, we have excellent relationships with the churches around us. We're partnering more and more and more. The church is together. That's wonderful. God's doing something amongst us because we know that we're, we're all on the same team. We're brothers and sisters. We love one another. We can do more together than we can apart. But, but it's not like that everywhere. And that's our problem. We're part of that. We own that. But also the people we're located amongst, we have a, a, a connection to. Internationally, over a couple of months ago, the Blue Planet Great documentary series. The one episode showed the amount of plastic that is being put into the ocean and the devastating effect that's having on our environment. And it seems that that's really grabbed people because there's been a collective response after that. There's less plastic being produced and less being wasted. There's a, a sense in which this is our problem. That's a good response. It's a really good response. A collective repentance, if you like. Nationally, we hear about Brexit and that it looks like it's going in such a way that it's going to cause problems for the poorest amongst us, most likely. Hardest hit. I'm not a politician. I don't, I don't claim to know all of the complexities of this political situation. But what I do know, if it hits the poorest, the hardest in March, that's our problem. It's not someone else's problem, it's our problem. Even locally, we saw in the news this week headline that says doctors mental health at tipping point and I know that that is very true in our local hospitals this is our problem and when we come to the Lord in prayer 
We need to feel the pain of the people to whom we belong, to whom we're connected, to see how unlike God we look at times, to, to understand that we've fallen. Now, it's not that it's all bad. It's not that we beat ourselves up. It's not all depression. There's many good things happening. When good things are happening, we celebrate it. And it's not that we are the answer to everything. The responsibility is all on us. It's too big for us. That's the point. But we feel it so that we can bring it to the Lord, understanding our hope is entirely outside of ourselves. And that leads me on to the next point, prayer's hope. In verse 8, Daniel says, To us belongs open shame because we've sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. You see that? We have this, but God, you have mercy and forgiveness. Prayer's hope is in the faithfulness of God, not our performance, not our faithfulness, in his faithfulness. Our hope is not even in the intensity of our repentance or the strength of our faith or the degree of our understanding. Our hope lies entirely outside of ourselves in the Lord God who will not forget his people, who will not forget the world he's created. In Daniel's prayer from verse 8 all the way through 19, he's rooting all his hope in God's faithfulness. That's why he can say in the same breath, to us belongs open shame, but to the Lord mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him. It's almost like Daniel saying, as soon as I see that we've got this problem, I see that you are the answer to our problem. The whole movement to Daniel's prayer is to direct all confidence into God. God is good, supremely merciful, completely just, totally committed to his people and to his world. And so Daniel keeps giving voice to that. From 8 through to 15, he reflects upon the covenant that God has made and that God has been faithful to his covenant, but we've not been faithful. So verse 11, it says, All Israel has transgressed your law. But verse 12, God has confirmed his words. Verse 13, We have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away. In it, Daniel's reflecting upon the Exodus, how God has delivered his people from slavery in the past, but Daniel's come to see we still need deliverance. The Exodus is not over, but God is the God who leads his people out of slavery. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, verse 16. Daniel appeals to God's righteousness. Do you understand what that means, that we have a righteous God? Let me just quote Fleming Rutledge again. Uh, hands up, I'm a bit of a fanboy of Fleming Rutledge at the moment. She is a, um, she's an Episcopalian priest in the States. She's 81, and she's having her biggest influence at this moment in time in her ministry. The Lord's hand is upon her. She says this, When we read in the Old Testament that God is just and righteous... This does not refer to a threatening, abstract quality that God has over against us. It is much more like a verb than a noun, because it refers to the power of God to make right what has been wrong. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that bring so much hope? We don't need to, 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 to be afraid of the righteousness of God. We can celebrate the fact that God is righteous. He's the one who rights wrongs which is why we can, we can celebrate about God's judgment, the time when he comes to right every wrong. God's righteousness is his movement and initiative to act on our behalf. And that's the theme that's carried forward in the New Testament in Paul, 
all Paul's writings about the righteousness that comes from God, that is by faith in Christ Jesus. It's him who makes right what is wrong. God's very nature is to act in that way. And Daniel knew this. We know he'd been reading the scriptures. We know he'd been in Jeremiah. Perhaps he'd read in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, where God says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Or in verse 21, hear the father heart of God. He says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Daniel is taking hold of the promises of God. He knows what God is like. He knows we need justice and mercy. And God perfectly exerts both. The balance between justice and mercy is so hard to come by. Where does that balance lie? You know, we all want justice. We want for wrongdoing to be held to account. We, we don't want impunity. Evils must be shown to be utterly evil and condemned. But we want mercy for ourselves. Human justice systems are vital. But human justice systems can't do enough because they can't undo hurts. They can't right wrongs. They cannot disabuse sufferers. And they cannot transform oppressors. Some of the shootings in the States um, of um, the, the shooting of a church, a, a group that had gathered about two years ago, and um, the, the perpetrator remains defiantly unrepentant in prison. Because the justice system can only do so much. It cannot transform a person. Nor can it undo all the pain and suffering that those victims have suffered. But the righteousness of God can do both. The righteousness of God can do both and has in Christ. The hope of all our prayers then is ultimately in the character and action and faithfulness of God. What we need is him. That's why Mike Reeves says that in prayer, God wants us to argue his promises and his character with him, for then who he is becomes an ever more conscious reality to us. In verse 17, Daniel says, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Open your eyes and see our desolations. And then in verse 18, for we do not present our pleas because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. He goes on to say, for your own sake. As Daniel is praying, he's remembering the sacrifices that were made in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. How through the sacrifices, forgiveness could come for a period of time and restored relationship happen. And yet, there is no one to present the sacrifice in Jerusalem because it's desolate. And so, Daniel realizes that what needs to be done, they are powerless to do. And so once again, he throws himself upon 
the mercy of God, who must act on their behalf. He says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, act. So prayer's hope is entirely in the faithfulness of God. But then we come to prayer's discovery. Lastly, let's read verse 20 through to 23 of Daniel 9. It says this, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. And the NIV, the translation of verse 23 is, as soon as you started to pray, the word went out. Daniel discovers in prayer the grace of God. It was in grace that God had made himself known through his word as Daniel opened the scriptures. It was in grace that Daniel came to see the desperate state of the people and his own association with their sinful condition. It is in grace that Daniel's repentance was being fueled by the Spirit of God. It was in grace that uh, was fixing Daniel's hope to the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. It's in grace that God responds to Daniel's prayer and it is grace that enables Daniel to hear, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. And to everyone in this room, even at this moment, the Lord's word to you is, you are greatly loved. In prayer we discover God's grace. Daniel went on to hear about part of the Lord's salvation plan. And the Lord's salvation plan is entirely found in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, all God's promises find their yes in him. A word went out to Daniel. A word has gone out to us. In John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word made flesh, the Word who was with God and and was God. The Word full of grace and truth. The Word made his dwelling amongst us, tabernacled amongst us. Jesus Christ is the Word of God and he came down and entered into our exile. And though he is fully God, he became fully man so that he could fulfill covenant faithfulness on our behalf as our representative so that God would be faithful to his side of the covenant and God would be faithful to our side of the covenant for us. He lived the life we have not. He has provided the perfect sacrifice when we had no way of offering anything. He was crucified, cut off, absorbing in himself Every evil or sin and death itself with a capital D in order that he would destroy everything that would destroy and deface us. That's why crucifixion. That's why it had to be crucifixion in no other way. And he is risen. He 
He's gloriously risen. He is the new Adam. Do you know, Adam is the Hebrew for humanity. It says in Romans 5, just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. He's, he's rewritten the human story. He is risen from the dead and he is going to bring newness of life for he will return at the final judgment and he will put the world to rights. He will undo every injustice, right every wrong, heal every hurt, destroy every oppression. Any movement in that direction now is a wonderful movement because it points to what's to come. And so of course we should fight oppression. Of course we should fight injustice. Of course we should do everything that we can knowing that it's not about us. He is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his judgment is something we can say yes to because he's the one who rights every wrong. He's the righteous one. And he acts on our behalf. Jesus is our only hope. He is the grace of God. He's been given to us. Prayer looks to him, takes hold of him, speaks out all the promises that God has made in Christ Jesus. It proclaims Jesus is Lord and that grace reigns. That's the launch pad for all our activity. Prayer discovers grace. Grace to you, grace to me, grace for the whole world. That's what prayer discovers. We've been placed for purpose to pray. On Thursday night, we're going to gather to pray. We're going to lift our eyes to God. We're going to remind ourselves of who he is as we sing truths about him and open the scriptures, and we're going to pray. I'd like to finish by praying now. Can we perhaps stand up? Jesus gave us a liturgical prayer to pray, a, a prayer that would enable us together to own truths about him and would pull out faith for us and place our hope in him in whom we discover grace. So I'd love for us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And as we do this, if we just pause on each line, allow it to sink in and fix your eyes on Jesus. I'll, I'll, I'll pray out a line and then if you repeat after me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. For yours is the kingdom, 
the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we lift our eyes to you. I pray, would you make us a people secure in your word who pray to you, understanding that when we have open shame, you have forgiveness and mercy, that you are the one who acts on our behalf and that we discover in you grace upon grace upon grace. In Jesus' name, amen.